This spring, about a week before the polls opened in the European Union elections, a handful of journalists were given a tour of a unique office space. Okay, so we're walking into this relatively nondescript, dark-lit room. On your left-hand side, there's a European Union flag and a poster board with a bunch of go get em tiger messages to help these mostly 20-something coders, engineers, right out of general casting, uh, to motivate them. On this tour is Mark Scott, chief tech correspondent for Politico. There's about 40 of them, mostly male, mostly white. The mostly male, mostly white engineers in this room, they're working for Facebook. How they divide it is all these 40 people work on specific country desks. So there's UK, Germany, Slovakia, Lithuania, and all of the people in the room, they collectively speak all of the 24 national EU languages. And collectively, they're monitoring online content ahead of the election. On the sides of the walls, there are humongous flat screen TVs, and they are showing in real time what is going on in social media. Mostly the Facebook uh, world, so that's WhatsApp, Instagram, and, and Facebook itself. But also there's metrics around, you know, what is sort of the chatter on social media. Facebook set up this room, this war room, to find and take down posts with false information, to delete fake accounts, terminate bots, anything that violates the platform's rules and is clearly designed to interfere with the election. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, for something that is so pivotal to democracy, checking to see if disinformation or so-called fake news is being spread. It was pretty mundane. You want to hear like people dropping and running across the room. You know, we found this from Russia or whatever. That just not doesn't happen. It's one of these things where the movies make it seem a lot more sexy. But in reality, it is a lot of looking at a screen and checking to see what's going on. A war for the future of democracy is playing out online, and we're starting to see just how big a battle it really is. On one side, you have politicians and governments talking to their citizens, trying to inform them on the issues and courting their vote. On the other side, individuals and foreign agents weaponize the same communication tools to spread misinformation. Or they target us with provocative messages to divide us from each other, maybe even influence how we vote. In both cases, social media is a powerful vehicle to get their message across. And with their EU election war room, Facebook is trying to fix a problem that they are at least partly responsible for creating. Everyone wants this to be better. No one wants for illegal advertising or political messages to get through that that isn't being flagged. Mark gives them credit for trying to protect the integrity of the EU election. But he also thinks the war room is as much about trying hard as it is about looking good. When you look at the efficacy of the Facebook war room, as they like to call it, I think some of it is public relations. It's good to show people doing something on this front. And he wonders if, in the end, this is even a battle that can be won. I think right now, no government or private company, be it Facebook or anyone else, has the power or, frankly, ability to stop bad actors or digital tricksters or whoever it is from spreading false narratives or disinformation that may sway voters at some point. We're releasing this episode on a week when both Canada and the U.S. celebrate the founding of their countries. But even as we party, countries around the world worry that democracy itself is at risk. So is democracy in trouble? 
Are elections and the internet incompatible? I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and this is IRL, an original podcast from Firefox. The Firefox browser has built-in tracking protection. That makes it harder for politicians, advertisers, and disinformation disseminators to find you. And with the free Facebook container extension, you can isolate your Facebook session from everything else you do online. More privacy means more democracy. Learn more at Firefox.com. There's nothing inherently wrong with political ads. They are, after all, a form of free expression. And as long as there have been democracies and elections, there's probably been deceptive advertising, disinformation campaigns, and misinformation problems. What's new is how precisely you can target potential voters. Now there can be so many tailored ads that learning to separate truth from falsehood becomes impossible. When we can't track who's sending what to whom, we're asking for trouble. This is one reason why democracies around the world worry that ad targeting and social media can erode election integrity and help blur the line between good information and false. Canada is worried. Citizens head to the polls in a federal election this fall, and a report published by the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity says foreign interference is likely. So the government passed a new bill, making it harder for foreign money to find its way into the election campaign. It also did one thing that's pretty unique in the world so far, uh, in that it uh, regulated online platforms for the first time in the election space by requiring all uh, political ads that happened from July 1st until Election Day to go uh, on an online ad registry. Karina Gould is a member of Canada's federal liberal cabinet. I am the Minister of Democratic Institutions and the Member of Parliament for Burlington. The Canadian government felt motivated to pass this law after observing electoral interference elsewhere. Really, this is based on the fact that what we saw in both the 2016 U.S. presidential election, but also in the Brexit referendum campaign and other elections around the world, is that this was one of the avenues of choice uh, for malicious foreign actors to try and interfere in uh, domestic elections. Karina is referring to the Cambridge Analytica scandal. The company harvested Facebook user data to target potential voters with political ads. Here's why she thinks this law was necessary. It actually reflects, you know, the spirit of the legislation when it comes to political ads um, in the offline world. When you and I are watching TV, um, if we're watching the same channel, we're going to be seeing the same ads. Um, If we're opening the newspaper, we're going to be seeing the same ads. But when you're online, they're so micro-targeted that, you know, I might not be getting the same content that you're getting, and that might skew my understanding of the idea. But it's also important for people to be able to see who's behind these advertisements, also know that it's an advertisement, it's paid content, it's not organic, and to really, you know, be able to to look and understand who's behind that and, and what their objectives are when they're communicating with them. Have you heard from the tech companies in terms of their response to this? Yes. So I would say that they uh, were not very happy about it, (laughs) as probably putting it mildly. Um, Facebook 
quite quickly came out and said they would be doing the registry. They'd be, you know, ensuring that political ads can take place on their various platforms. Google came out quite quickly to say that they would just ban political advertisements in Canada because uh, according to them, uh, it was it was too difficult to do the registry. And my feeling is, is it's not my job to legislate what Google wants um, me to legislate. It's to legislate what's in the best interest of Canadians. I, I want to ask you, so this, this law covers ads. What do you do, though, about the misinformation problem um, that there still is, even if Google decides not to allow any paid-for political advertisements? In terms of what the government of Canada can do, I think we have to be really careful because it's one thing for a Canadian citizen who is online and sharing their opinion um, or sharing something that they think is true and it's not. Um, they have a right to to share that information. I mean, we have freedom of expression in this country. Um, but we also want to be careful that we're not, um, you know, as government seen to be the arbiters of good and bad information. And so this is where civil society plays a really important role and where media plays a really important role to be informing Canadians as to the information that's coming across uh, their screens and, you know, that they're consuming. Yeah, I, I think as someone with the word democracy in your title, you must think about that concept from a very sort of um, values-based and idealistic way. And I think it, it makes one even wonder whether the online space is good or not so good for democracy in this context. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And look, I'm I'm an optimist and I do think that there's a lot of value in the online space. But just like we have rules and norms in the offline world, we should be applying those online as well. So anyone wanting to run a political ad on Facebook and Canada will need to have it added to a trackable registry. And at the end of June, Twitter announced it will also have a registry in place for the election period this fall. Until then, Canadian political ads are banned from the platform. Helpful? Absolutely. Canada's law bans foreign-backed political advertising, too. That also helps. But the law only applies to paid ads— There are plenty of other ways politicians, organizations, and yes, foreign agencies can try to target voters and influence the election. There's email and texting, for instance, and anyone is still free to make and upload their own content to the platform of their choice. Ben Wisner thinks this law is just another form of content moderation. And all things considered, he says the lawmakers aren't thinking big enough. I'm the director of the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project at the American Civil Liberties Union here in New York. I do think that governments need to be more assertive, but I think it's the wrong answer to the wrong question. It's the wrong answer because content moderation is really a drop in the bucket of the problems that we're talking about. I mean, people seem very worried about this idea of political ads, and you are actually saying... Maybe we're worrying too much about their impact. I mean, it was never proven actually in any way that Cambridge Analytica, that those tactics actually did anything to persuade anyone to vote a certain way or not, right? I think that the elections of 2016, uh, Trump being elected in the U.S., Brexit taking place um, in the U.K., were so 
traumatic to people, that there was this need to ascribe it to some new or outside factor. Our news ecosystem has been polluted by talk radio for a generation, um, long before there was ever a Facebook. So many of my fellow citizens here have had their brains poisoned by um, television and radio propaganda for a long time. Uh, and now we're going to say that a bunch of people in a troll factory in St. Petersburg who were posting ads in bad English are the ones who we should be existentially afraid of. It just doesn't compute for me. We should be worried about Facebook and Google. Uh, we should be worried about them for a lot of reasons. They tend to really increase our polarization um, by responding to what we want rather than what we need. Um, people love fake news. They adore it. People want that kind of content. We should not be getting most of our news and information from platforms that deliver on those base desires. But it seems to me that that is the urgent project. So how do we get to a point where there are checks and balances? If it's not regulation, how do we have some sort of agreement where we know when we have crossed the line and gone too far? So let's be optimistic for just a second here. <laughs> uh, you know, In the same way that I think the Snowden revelations really gave us this rare generational moment to look at the dangers of mass surveillance by governments. Maybe 2016 is what was needed for people across the American political spectrum to recognize that we may not be getting such a good deal um, from this business model, from this world of big tech where we get everything for free and it's so convenient and there's no cost, but maybe there is a cost. Um, and so that kind of wake-up call is what's necessary. This is the conversation we need, even if we haven't yet arrived at the solution that answers all of these questions that we're asking. That is very optimistic. It means like we're in a good place. It's a tough place, but it's a good place in some ways. We will see what comes out of it. I don't want to be too optimistic. The tech companies are spending more money in Washington and Brussels than oil companies. Right? These are still some of the most uh, powerful corporations that the world has ever seen. And they're not just going to, you know, voluntarily, you know, disarm and break themselves up. It's going to be a huge political fight that's going to take a long time. This idea of being able to target a voter specifically on um, topics that speak to them or um, make them worried or all of those things. If you were running for office, would you feel comfortable with parsing and slicing and dicing all the voters out there and targeting like that? Let's say they shouldn't have access. Are we going to come up with a way that we can say that Nike and Walmart can have this information, but the Beto O'Rourke campaign can't have this information? It's just not a workable um, set of rules for us to come up with. And if you looked at the articles about um, Barack Obama's 2012 campaign, the same kinds of tactics were celebrated. They were using people's Facebook friendship networks um, in order to figure out which voters to target and how. Now, obviously, all of those tools have gotten much, much more sophisticated. Um, but from a sort of policy standpoint, uh, it's not so easy to draw a line between persuasion, which is politics, um, and manipulation. Part of this is going to depend on our own resilience. Um, resilience has always been the best response to propaganda. There is no way in free societies for us to control what messages our citizens are going to hear from different sources, but they can have a stronger base of civic education and values in order to kind of withstand that. 
Ben Wisner makes it pretty clear he would love to see social media platforms held to account for their role in spreading misleading information and prioritizing more clicks over better content. It may be that companies like Google's YouTube are paying attention. In June, the video platform said they were expanding their effort to slow the spread of, as they call it, borderline content and harmful misinformation. YouTube's algorithm will be adjusted to limit promotion of this kind of content. It will also recommend videos from more trustworthy sources, like top news channels on the platform. Let's pick up on that last argument that Ben was making. He believes an important part of this fight to protect democracy is making sure that citizens are well-informed and share common values. In fact, civic institutions are ramping up efforts to teach people how to tell good information from misinformation from disinformation. An example of that is the Stop Fake organization in Ukraine. My name is Ruslan Denichenko, and I am one of co-founders of the Stop Fake fact-checking project from Ukraine, from Kyiv. My name is Yevhen Fetchenko, and I am chief editor and one of the co-founders of StopFake.org. Ukraine, of course, sits right next door to Russia. The two countries are not on good terms. Russia annexed part of the country in 2014. Ruslan and Yohen say Ukraine faces constant Russian disinformation campaigns. Of course, when uh, when we have elections, the quality and quantity of fakes are absolutely amazing. Ukraine's presidential election took place in March and April. A 41-year-old comedian named Volodymyr Zelensky challenged incumbent president Petro Poroshenko. But that's not the only challenge Poroshenko faced. It was like the whole spectrum of lies, basically starting with the Naming Mr. Poroshenko alcoholic, liar. They repeated constantly that he killed his brother and his brother died in the car accident many, many years ago. We've seen examples that basically you can uh, fake anything, starting with uh, textual information, uh, videos, photos, fake experts, fake think tanks, forged and fake uh, governmental documents, uh, books. Uh, so we need to explain all those things to people and provide them with as many examples as possible and to show them that they really should be much more critical in terms of what they consume and from what sources. Stop fake's efforts don't stop there. What we can do is to teach people to become fact-checkers themselves. We have a special sections uh, where we basically say any one of you can become a fact-checker. You can use the same instruments we're using. You can use the same approaches. It's very easy to produce some fake because you need just five minutes uh, of time to create a fake story because your fantasy only the limit and it takes us sometimes weeks or days to find the truth and to find the evidence that it's not true find out more about stop fake at stopfake.org or look for a link in this episode's show notes If you're wondering what happened to President Poroshenko, he lost the election by a landslide. 73% of votes cast went to Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedian. The extent of his political experience before was, well, playing the role of president in a TV show. 
It's like if Julia Louis-Dreyfus left HBO's Veep to run against Donald Trump and won. Stop Fake uses the internet to reach fellow citizens in Ukraine directly. In effect, the website becomes a sort of digital public space, a forum where people can trust each other's motives and work together to safeguard democracy. It's important to be able to find safe spaces like this online. Yet however useful a site like Stop Fake may be, maintaining public spaces offline can help inoculate citizens against deceptive advertising and false information. It's something Eric Kleinenberg explains in his book called Palaces for the People, how social infrastructure can help fight inequality, polarization, and the decline of civic life. Eric is also a sociology professor at New York University. Social infrastructure refers to the the physical places and the organizations that shape our interactions. But social infrastructure shapes the quality of our democratic culture because it can determine, you know, whether we have meaningful interactions with other people in general. It can determine whether we are open to or closed off from neighbors and strangers. Uh, And it can shape our capacity to start dialogues with people who don't agree with us on everything. Eric wonders... If the way we engage and disengage from online discussions makes us vulnerable to influence. We tend to interact with people who are very far away from us uh, and who, who quickly come to represent some archetype. And so it's easy for us to get hostile and aggressive and make threats or be dismissive without really engaging the idea or the person. So in some ways we are susceptible to targeted ads that are hate-mongering and stigmatizing of other people. Um, At the same time, what really influences our behavior and changes our minds are the conversations that we have with people we know and trust. When we're with other people in real life, we tend to take in the reality of their humanity in a different way. I'm not saying in any way that we have an ideal public sphere and that we form our opinions based you know, solely on reason and evidence. But I do think the kind of social infrastructure we have shapes the conversations that we have access to. For instance, uh, my son plays on a, a soccer team that draws kids from all over the region. And on the weekends, I spend a lot of my time you know, on or around soccer fields with a bunch of other parents you know, who have nothing to do with one another, except for that their kids are on the same team and love the same sport. And on many occasions, we've been able to talk things through with each other. I, I don't know if people vote differently because of those conversations, but it feels much more like meaningful political dialogue. And it happens because we're around a soccer field uh, and not an iPhone. You know, My point here is not we just need to build a library or a park. Now that, that would be naive. Um, but it is my view that we need to start establishing some sense of a common conversation uh, with shared standards of things like evidence and logic. And I don't see how we start to do that if we don't have some shared physical spaces where we can spend time together, you know, hopefully in a sustained way, uh, and, and, and speak and listen to one another. In and of itself, online data is benign until you use it. 
Targeted political ads can be good or they can be bad, just depends on who's doing the targeting, and if we can even tell where it's coming from. In that confusion, misinformation and disinformation can spread. And it's worth remembering, we still don't know if ad targeting or false information actually works to get people to vote for specific candidates. What we have seen, certainly here in the U.S., is that it can sow doubt among citizens, make them question the basic pillars of democracy, like fairness and equality. The goal of those looking to cause confusion might be less about turning elections one way or another and more about creating chaos and division. In the meantime, citizens need to remind each other the best way to defend democracy is to stay informed. Question the source of your information. Engage your friends and your family in conversation. Politics should not be a taboo topic at the dinner table. And of course, when it's you and your country's turn, go vote and let everyone online know that you did. It's the easiest and the best way to celebrate and defend democracy. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and I'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks. This is IRL, an original podcast from Firefox.